If he wasn't, we would, we would be in dire straits. Um, but um, he's with us uh, also, because November 22nd apparently is the day for everything. That's also the Subramanians, uh, um, what do you, uh, 29th is the adoption day, 22nd is the dedication of their four new kids. So 22nd, do everything on the 22nd. Um, well, we have the privilege of hearing from God's word this morning. So if you are uh, if you have a Bible with you, which I hope you do, please turn in it to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Um, Romans is near the beginning of the New Testament. It's just right after the Gospels in Acts. Um, and today, we're going to read the conclusion of Paul's extended exhortation um, to, the, to, the, to the Roman church to be unified and to, to bear with one another. And, and Paul's already made it clear that as, as kind of a part of our our, of our reasonable service to God. Um, I might actually take the hand mic because this is going to fall off me. I'm sorry. I broke, for those on Zoom, I broke, uh, I broke this. <laughs> do we have, do you have the hand mic, Savannah? Uh, no, they do you have it? Because otherwise this is going to keep falling off me and I'm going to get really distracted. Thank you. Test, test. Here we go. Checking. Thanks for bearing with us, church.
As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Thank you that you are not distracted by anything that happens on this earth. You have a word for us to hear. You care about our unity. You care about your glory. So Lord, make us ready to hear from you today. I pray, change our hearts. Give us a bigger sight of who Christ is and what he's done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Olympic cauldron, which holds the Olympic flame, is a spectacle to the world. Um, during the Olympics, it is seen by people watching all over the globe. Um, its flames symbolize a rich history of, of Olympic games, dating back all the way to the Greek Empire and the very first Olympics. And, and these cauldrons have, have exhibited some very extravagant designs over the years. Um, from, the, from the glass walls, I don't know how you get fire and glass and keep things from breaking. From the glass walls of the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympic cauldron, all the way to the industrial pipes of the 2006 Turin Olympic cauldron is this cool helix-looking industrial pipe <laughs> uh, design. These cauldrons have inspired awe uh, from their onlookers. But these cauldrons take a lot of fuel to keep going, as you might imagine. Um, according to the Taiyi, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's a Canadian news source, um, the 2010 Olympic cauldron in Vancouver, Canada, um, during its, its, I think, 25-day period during the Olympics and Paralympics, it burned enough fuel to power the average Canadian household for 56 years. That's a lot of fuel. I think that's something we can forget. We see a spectacle, we think, that's amazing, how cool. You can kind of hear NBC's like, dun, 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 right? But there's fuel needed to keep this spectacle burning. It's a sight to behold, but it needs a source to keep going. Today, we're going to look at another spectacle, namely the unity of the church. Paul states in verse 7 that when we welcome one another in unity, it is to the glory of God. Our unity makes God appear glorious. And our unity is a spectacle to the world. It's, um, in, in his commentary on, on Romans, R. Kent Hughes uh, says it this way. He says, The quality of our unity either attracts or repels the world. That's a heavy statement. And our unity as believers, as, as we welcome one another, that unity is to shine just as brightly as any Olympic cauldron. It's supposed to be that much of a spectacle to the world and inspiring to the world around us. But like 
the cauldrons. We need fuel, and we need a lot of it. We need a constant source to keep this fire of unity lit. And thankfully, God, through Paul, does not intend to leave us without fuel. Rather, he's, he's provided a steady source that's sufficient to keep this flame going. And that fuel for our unity is Christ's own example. Perhaps, perhaps you're feeling low on fuel this morning. Perhaps you're becoming very weary of trying to bear with your neighbor or church member or family member who has drastically different perspectives than you do about parenting or politics or COVID-19. And if you've been around, if you've been around long enough, you know it can be can be hard work to endure with fellow believers. If you haven't been around long enough, you're going to find out soon enough. <laughs> and, and if you're weary, guess what? There's, there's good news today. God does not intend to leave you without fuel. He does not intend to leave you with this high command of selflessly deferring to others without also giving you the constant motivation to do that. So as we draw on this divine fuel source, we're going to glorify God and grow in joy. Christ's example, that's the fuel for our unity. And we must look to him today and every day. So we're going to start with this morning. This morning we'll look at, with Paul, at two aspects of Christ's example. Two aspects of Christ's example and how those aspects motivate us to unity. We'll look first at Christ's self-denial, and then we'll look at Christ's servanthood. So let's look at the first aspect of Christ's example together. Christ's self-denial. Look with me again here at, at, um, at verse 1. Paul writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So here, Paul is, he's continuing his argument from before. He spent an entire chapter speaking to the Roman church about the, the strong and the weak, uh, both Christians, both parties able to, to glorify God, but both parties are called to live peaceably together as they have differing opinions about the world around them. And, and, and here Paul calls, uh, he calls the strong to not please themselves. In fact, he says the strong actually have an obligation to bear with the weak. That's, that's strong language. I think we have an obligation to pay taxes, right? We have an obligation here, Paul says, to, to bear with the weak. That's the, the weightiness of the command. But this command isn't just for the strong. Paul says in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor. That's every single one of us. For his good, to build him up. So Paul's saying, don't please yourself, rather please your neighbor. So for a strong Christian, that might mean you have to resist, for instance, making that, making just the perfect joke about someone who in your assessment is just way too much of a nitpicky stickler with traffic laws, right? And you're just like, oh, I just want to say something that would be really funny to make fun of you and people would think it's funny, but I should bear with you because you have that on your conscience and you can't jaywalk, for instance, or are <laughs> willing to, to make some, you know, maneuver on the street. For the weak Christian, it might mean not silently judging the person who seems to not care so much about traffic laws and drives a few miles an hour over the speed limit or doesn't always use their turn signal, right? 
That's what it looks like. This is one way it looks like to not please ourselves. And, and those, these little quirks might seem trivial, but this stuff, especially over time, can get really tiring. Um, Tim Keller puts it this way. I like this. He says, we are not simply to relate to our own kind or to people who give to us and build us up emotionally. We must be willing to love and relate to people who are draining. That's the call here. Do you know people who are draining? Perhaps you avoid that person who just keeps on talking about that book series or that TV series that you just have absolutely zero interest in. <laughs> or perhaps you, you look for a way to excuse yourself from that conversation with the person who every single time you talk to them, it just seems like they have another new problem. But these are the people that God calls us to bear with, to please and to build up. We are those people. Now, that's hard work. That takes energy. Paul knew it. God knows it. And thankfully, we're not left without the motivation to carry out this command. So this is where Paul pulls out the big guns. Why do we have an obligation to bear with others? Why do we have to not seek to please ourselves but seek to please others? Verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ did not please himself. That's about the biggest understatement ever. Snade. <laughs> Christ did not please himself. Okay, here's Jesus, the divine son of God, living in perfect harmony and unity with God the Father since eternity past, enjoying the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, uninterrupted in, in, in his joy in the Trinity. And now, from there, he visits planet Earth, which is full of disease and discontent and death and political upheaval and full of weak and sinful and incompetent people. And more than that, he came knowing he'd be unappreciated and even insulted for being faithful to God. That's what Paul talks about in the next verse. Paul quotes here from Psalm 69, which was written by David. It's as David is crying out to God for all this unjust persecution that he's enduring just because he loves God and identifies himself with God. Paul applies this psalm to Christ. He says that Christ was reproached or insulted just because he loved and followed God. And we see this most vividly on the cross. Jesus, the only perfect man, he was shamefully and publicly executed as a criminal because he obeyed God. And why did Christ do that? Why, why did Christ not please himself and instead go to the cross? It's about the most unpleasing thing in the world. It is. Why did he do that? Well, he did it for our good. He died so that we might be made right with God. Our, our sin earned nothing but God's wrath, and, and we deserve to die, but because Christ died, all who put their hope in him will live. And if you're not sure if you've put your hope in Jesus, you're questioning that, I'd say, please talk to a Christian you know about this. Um, there's a reason Jesus had to die on the cross. It wasn't just some example. It's because we have violated God's commands. And the only way that we can be right with God is, is to trust in what Christ has done. And if you haven't done that, I would, I would consider doing, I would have you consider doing that today. 
It won't do you, it won't, the rest of this sermon, the, the commands that God gives to you won't do you any good if you haven't placed your hope in Christ. Trying to please others to make yourself right with God is so backwards. We must first put our trust in the one who came to not please himself, but died on the cross for our sins. If you have questions about that, please feel free to follow up with me. I would be more than happy to keep talking with you about this. That's what Christ has done. If we were to put Christ's name, <laughs> he, he, he fulfilled Romans 15, 1 and 2 perfectly. If we put Christ's name, it would say, Christ bore with the feelings of the weak. By the way, that's us. And did not please himself. Instead, he pleased his neighbor, us. Of all people, he would consider us his neighbor, these little weaklings living on planet Earth under a, a magnificent and holy and infinite God. He calls us his neighbor, and he, he pleases us for our good, to build us up. He denied himself for our sake. And so the reason we have an obligation to bear with one another is because Christ, of all people, bore with us. That's the motivation that must carry us through the rough patches of just being weary of draining people. Paul knew this. He knew we needed the reminders of Scripture to fuel us in obedience. In fact, Paul makes this, he makes this very point in the next verse. He writes in verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Be bearing with one another requires endurance. It requires encouragement. Those are strong words. It's a lot of, that's a lot of fuel needed. And then the scriptures, including the Psalms of, of David's times and his outcries to God, and the Gospels that, that depict all of Christ's work, and all of the scriptures, those are given to us for our instruction so that we might have hope. Now Paul's going to loop back to that theme of hope later, and so will we. But for now, here's what we can learn. An awareness of Christ's work on the cross will help us to deny ourselves and to seek to build up our neighbor. I think of, when I, I think of an example from the movie um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, uh, which stars Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers from the kids' TV show. Um, if you haven't seen this movie, I, I recommend it. Um, I found it very refreshing. Um, so it's, I think it's worth your time. It's uh, under two hours. But in this movie, Mr. Rogers, as, as Tom Hanks portrays him, he has this sincere heart and, and a genuine selflessness and care for others and true humility. And these, these characteristics, they, they motivate a rather skeptical and, and somewhat negative journalist by the name of, of Lloyd Vogel. And, and this influence changes Lloyd to, to, to change his attitude toward his father, who severely and legitimately wronged him years ago. And, and Lloyd's been holding on to this grudge for, for many years. But Mr. Rogers' example inspired Lloyd to forgive with, to forgive his father and, and to bear with him. Christ's example is meant to inspire us as well. We have someone, as the writer of Hebrews might agree with us, greater than Moses, greater than Mr. Rogers. <laughs> We have, we have someone here who inspires us to deny ourselves and to seek to please and build up others. So, are you growing weary of dealing with unappreciative children or unappreciative clients at work? 
unappreciative co-workers. Well, then look back at the cross where Christ was unappreciated as he hung naked on a tree for our sins. Are you ready to give up on somebody who just, you're supposed, you think you're supposed to minister to them and you're just ready to write them off as never willing to change and never going to make any growth? Well, then remember Christ who came after you. And you were not only a lost cause, you were spiritually dead. You didn't have a spiritual heartbeat. There was no hope for you to do any sort of change. And yet he came after you and resurrected you. Remember this Jesus who died for you and resurrected you from death so that you might die to yourself and help others live. We must pull upon Christ's example for strength. And as we follow Jesus in this, we're going to bring glory to God. Paul says in in, in verse 5, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is like a bonus truth. <laughs> Not only do the scriptures encourage us to endure with one another, but God himself is going to help build us into a community that exhibits the harmony made possible by Christ. God himself is at work. And, and the imagery here of, of what he produces in us is, is one of harmonic worship. Paul's his, his wish prayer for the Roman church is that they would live, check out all the, all the unity words going on here. They would live in such harmony with one another that together with one voice they may glorify God. Uh, th- this just makes me think of when my family would do Christmas carols uh, during Christmas time. We, we you know, knock on people's doors and sing songs. And, and we had practice and rehearsed Carol of the Bells for a while and, and learned multiple, you know, I don't know how many parts of harmony, maybe four or something like that. It was a lot of fun. And, and, and when we weren't quite all in tune, it was pretty gritty <laughs> to hear because you're like, I can't hear myself and you sound tone deaf. And it was, it got rough. It got pretty rough. But man, when we were on point and we, we all, when we all sung in harmony together, it just, it just made you glad from the inside out. Like, that was good. That was sweet. That's what Paul says our unity is like to God. When we're in tune with one another, when we're seeking to defer to and serve one another, even when it's hard and costly, it's a sweet melody to God. It is music to his ears. When we follow Christ's example in humbling ourselves and putting others' needs before our own, it glorifies God. So, what is our charge? Paul summarizes it very nicely in verse 7. He says, Therefore, in light of all this, in light of the glory that God's going to get because of, because of our unity in Christ, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. May we do that. And we're not done. This actually brings us quite nicely to, our, to the second aspect of Christ's example, namely Christ's servanthood. So Paul just got done talking about welcome one another. He spent a good amount of time motivating us by the example, right, of Christ denying himself and dying on the cross, but he's not done. 
Paul is not done giving us motivation. And praise God for that. What mercy that God would say, you know what, I'm going to give you even more fuel. Like, that might be sufficient, but you know what, let's go for round two. <laughs> you need it. He's not done. We, we get fuel for the long haul. So Paul pivots here to illustrate just exactly how, how Christ has welcomed us. And it's namely through his servanthood. It's the way he serves us. Verse 8 says that Christ became a servant. And we find out that, that Christ serves two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. We're going to look at one at a time. Let's look at the first group, the Jews. So this group is identified in verse 8. Verse 8 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So the circumcised, that is a, that's a reference, right, to the Jewish people. Now, to us, that might seem like a very odd reference. Um, like, why not just call them the Jewish people? Why say, why say the circumcised? Why does Paul say that? But, but to the Jews, circumcision is this sign. It's a sign of their covenant relationship with God through God's promise to Abraham, back all the way back, Genesis 17, way, 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 way back. It's a sign that, that they were these people set apart for God. And, and that they were the people designated, chosen, for no good reason. Abram was just this guy, you know, wandering in the land of Ur, and God says, I'm choosing you and your offspring. I'm going to set my blessings on you. You are the people designated to enjoy all of God's gifts and his promises. But how exactly did Christ become a servant to the circumcised, right? That's what Paul says. He became a servant to the circumcised. But how did he do that? Well, the prophet Isaiah gives, shed, shed some light here, which is really helpful. He, he speaks prophetically of, of Christ's servant ministry about 700 years before Paul wrote his letter. A little bit more than that. In Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 17, we read this. Behold, my servant, that's a reference to Christ, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. This servant of God would have his appearance so marred that the people would be astonished at him. His figure would become so deformed that he doesn't even look human anymore. And this servant is Christ and his suffering is the cross. There he, he was bruised and beaten and mocked in order to sprinkle many nations with his blood and so bear the guilt of our sin. Not only did Christ deny himself at the cross, he also served us. He served God's people by bearing their guilt. And in so doing, he, he showed God's word to be true, right? Paul says that in, in verse 8. He talks about, Christ became a servant to show God's truthfulness. The promises given to the patriarchs, the promises that to the forefathers um, uh, of the circumcised, that, that you will have all this blessing through Abraham, you know, and, and, and all your offspring. Christ fulfilled that in his death and in his resurrection. And on, on his death on the cross, Christ fulfilled all the promises. And, and he welcomed, he welcomed the circumcised and he made them right with God. But that's not the only group, thankfully, that God is welcome. 
because I don't think a whole lot of us are Jewish here. <laughs> Christ has welcomed a second group. He's welcomed the Gentiles. Paul, Paul turns his attention from the Jews to the Gentiles in verse 9. There Paul says that Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the salvation that Christ won for the circumcised is also the salvation that he won for Gentiles. That's, I think we can forget how cool this is. That is amazing news, believer, because we weren't, we weren't next to bat in God's like, you know, <laughs> clear, you're, you're next. I, you know, I have my promises ready. Here, you're up. No, we, we were, the, the Gentiles were the nations that the people of Israel were supposed to not be like. That's us. We're the people outside the covenant. We're not the people set apart for God. And yet, Christ came to give us salvation too. That's supposed to evoke praise in us. It's supposed to cause us Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, something we didn't deserve. When I think of mercy of God evoking praise, I, I think of the last semester in my college career. Um, I had one semester left, and then I was going to finish my degree, but I was at the end, and I lost, <laughs> I lost a lot of motivation to finish well, um, partly because I knew I wanted to become a pastor. It's no excuse for not doing well at school. <laughs> but man, I just lost steam. I put in the bare minimum effort to pass my classes. I was literally aiming for Ds because you need to see if it's a prerequisite for something else, but by the last semester, they're all senior classes and they're not prerequisites. So I was like, a D is good enough for me. That's all I was going for. Well, after I took my finals, I waited with worried anticipation to see if I graduated or not, even though I had already walked. <laughs> my grades hadn't come in yet. If I didn't get the grades I needed, I wouldn't graduate, and I'd need to do a whole extra semester, which at that point sounded like the worst thing in the world, um, just to get my degree. And when I saw my grades come in one by one, I was just astonished. But actually, in some classes I received, I received C's. In classes I knew full well I did not deserve C's. Like, I did the math, I looked it up, I was a D, solid. And it was just sheer mercy that I got C's and was able to be able to graduate. That's, that's, that's what mercy looks like. And what did it do in my heart? It evoked praise. At the time, I was actually in Disneyland, which sounds like a lot of fun. It was. But actually, when I got these emails, and I was like, yes, this is the best part of this trip. <laughs> I graduated. Mercy. That's what the mercy of God to us is like. Yes, did not deserve that. And yet, I'm going to embrace it wholeheartedly. We didn't deserve any of God's promises or gift, gifts. We weren't the covenant people that God, God you know, gave all of his promises to through Abraham. We were just the nations, and yet we received mercy. That calls for praise. And Paul leads this charge. He's aware of the, the implications of this theology. He, he quotes, he, he jumps into four different texts. I mean, that's He's only got one letter in Romans, and here he decides to use four references to make his point. He quotes from, from all over the Old Testament. He looks at the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those are the categories of the Old Testament, you know, to the Jews. So he quotes from all three of those big categories. He, he quotes from authors including David, 
King David, Moses, way back when, Isaiah, much later on, he's basically saying the truth about God showing his mercy to the Gentiles has just been scattered across all the scriptures, and the result is that there is praise to God among the nations. Let's read what Paul writes, picking up in verse 9. He says, as it is written, right, according to the God showing mercy to the Gentiles, as it is written, therefore... I will praise you among the Gentiles. This is David. This is David writing. I will praise you among who? The Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice who? Oh, Gentiles with his people. The Gentiles rejoice with God's people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, that's David's line. That's Israel. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule who? The Jews? He who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. That's remarkable mercy. That, that astounded the Jews. That was something they weren't looking for. The undeserving nations get this mercy from God and praise God with the covenant people of God. So fellow believer, praise God that he has welcomed you in. Praise God that he's included you in the promises that he's given to his covenant people. Praise God that he has sent the root of Jesse to rule over you and to give you hope. Christ has welcomed both the Jews and the Gentiles, both God's covenant people and their enemy nations. Christ has become the servant of all, in order to welcome us before God. So brothers and sisters, the fact that Christ has welcomed us should cause us to praise God. It should fill us with fresh hope. And that note of hope is how Paul ends this section with verse 13. It says this. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Christ has made it possible for us to abound in hope. Because Christ became a servant, we get joy. We get peace. We get hope. And the more aware that we become of all that Christ has done for us, the, the, the more we're going to share in the same hope and glorify God together. It has a unifying effect the more we become aware that Christ has welcomed us, the more readily we will be to welcome one another. The more we draw on the fuel of Christ's example and salvation, the more brightly we are going to shine to an onlooking world who sees a people enjoying the mercy of God. So, believer, rehearse to your soul all that Christ has done for you. Remember his death Recall his welcome. Soak in the promises of God that are yes to you in Christ and find motivation because of what Christ has done to then live out your life among others, other sinners who enjoy the same mercy that you do. They're just as undeserving as you are. May this attitude mark our church. May we be so aware on a daily basis of all that Christ has done for us that the only reasonable conclusion in our minds, the only reasonable service 
is that we bear patiently with one another. May our church be a beacon of light to an onlooking world as they see people for whom Christ died unified in praise to God. Let's pray to that effect. Lord, I pray that you would make us such a people. I pray that you would make us so aware of all that Christ has done that we, not for a moment, can think of someone else as lesser than us or annoying to us or draining. Lord, you, you gave all. You drained your blood for our sake. And Lord, I pray that, that we would not forget that. Lord, that we, that we would take Paul's encouragement, that all of Scripture is given to us for this, for the encouragement and for our hope. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with an awareness of all that Christ has done so that we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Let's stand.